0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live for our first program in 2022. I'm Elahi Izadi, a staff writer covering media at the Washington Post. My guest today is Roy Wood Jr., comedian and correspondent for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Roy, thanks for joining us today. It's great to chat again. How
0: are you doing? And I want to know. How far down into my Instagram feed did you find that clip of me doing student journalism at the wonderful Florida a University? Well, we at
1: The Post, we take our investigative journalism seriously, so we dug deep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was very deep and a lot of pounds. That's back when I used to ride a bike every day by necessity. Oh, yeah, I was fit. I was fit back then. Yeah, I didn't need a now, peloton. Now. Was...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you can just get a peloton for two grand and do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, thanks for joining us. Let's, let's start with your latest special, which premiered on Comedy Central, Imperfect Messenger. Um, what was it like uh, preparing and performing this special before live audiences during a pandemic? Ooh,
0: that was uh, weird. But the thing about the pandemic, and this is what they don't talk about. The people who showed up to the comedy shows during, I'm just talking 21. I didn't work a lot during 2020. Like during that first shutdown, I wasn't really out that much. All the comedy clubs were down anyway. Uh, but in 21, the people who showed up were people who really did want to laugh. So. You have this group of performers who really have a desire to perform and a group of people who really needed to be entertained. And it was just a perfect, it was just a perfect situation. I did not get to work this special as long as you traditionally would, but I think what is traditional is now just past tense, in my opinion, if we're talking about just how comedy is constructed and how, you know, the average hour special, a comedian may polish that material for a year and a half or up to four years um in some cases this special was pretty much about nine months maybe 10 months you know there was maybe 10 15 minutes of material that I had pre-pandemic that I felt like this chunk still this stuff about the police and firefighters this still worked. but everything else that I've been working on before 2020 I just threw out and just you know we have to focus on what is happening now and to me I think that's where stand-up comedy has to exist. So this idea of polishing and nipping and I just don't think you can do that anymore. I mean, if you to put it, I put that special out two months ago, and now Omicron is all over the place, closing things down again. Like I almost, for a while, I thought I wasn't even going to get, I wasn't going to make it to the finish line to actually tape it. Wow.
1: Yeah, and you touch on a lot of themes in this special. You mentioned police, uh, race, celebrity, prison reform. Um, we actually have a clip from Imperfect Messenger where you talk about policing. Uh, let's take a look.
0: I got two cops in my family, which, which is kind of like saying some of my best friends are black. <laughs> yeah. What do I do? I got two cops in my family. Chicago suburb and a Mississippi State Trooper. we get to talking about everything that's going on, man. And I was trying to explain to them, it's base level shit the police could be doing. We ain't talking legislation and policy. Just base level shit you could do to help build a bridge, to make things a little better. First thing the police need to do, this is one thing I think the police should start doing. Stop talking in code on the radio. Use regular words. Why are y'all talking all these abbreviations and shit? What are, are you keeping secrets? Secrets is what got you in trouble all this time. Stop <laughs> keeping secrets. You ain't in Iraq. You ain't giving away your position to the enemy. You's regular work. You're in front of the Walgreens. I can see you. Everybody can see you. <laughs> but that ain't what the police do. You heard the police talk to each other on the radio. It's just gibberish. Anytime the police talk to each other, it's just gibberish. Three Victor, two David, two David, two Victor. Come bang on. <laughs> And we be watching the police in the grocery store. They see us looking at looking at the radio. The police love to play it off act like they understood what dispatch was talking about. <laughs> three Adam David, three Adam David, three respond code two back to Um,
1: So aside from like a pitch perfect impersonation of a police scanner, <laughs> uh, the setup <laughs> to that, <laughs> which I'm just wondering like how long it took you to get that down. Uh, the the setup to that joke it's interesting because you touch on a nuance within a bigger issue, policing and race. Um, You as a comic, do you gravitate towards the gray areas in, in issues that can be talked about in very black and white terms in society?
0: Yeah, because I think that's where people don't normally exist. So I think that's interesting. I think that's more interesting than just going, police bad, police good, or what about sometimes there's just lazy cops and that's a good thing too. And like, we do, I didn't get to talk about that in the special, but, you know, I know cops who drive their car home in their regular clothes. It's like this weird, and it just makes me laugh. And in a way, that's more endearing to the community than an ice cream cone or dancing with some kid at a basketball court. Just let me see you do your job lazily and wrong. That makes me think you might be okay. So it's like this idea of finding, and I have to kind of you know, credit The Daily Show, but helping me with this from a perspective standpoint, is if there's two sides to this issue, what is the side that no one has considered or has talked about? We don't have to decide today, not in my comedy show, we don't have to decide who's right or who's wrong, but let's look at this from a lot of different ways so we can at least leave this experience with a different perspective on the issue.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and something you've said before about your comedy um, is you you said that my comedy is for black people to know they're not alone and feeling the way they feel and also informing the people who are ignorant of the journey of a black person in this country. So when you're performing and developing your material, is that something you're consciously trying to balance speaking to those two audiences simultaneously?
0: For me, you know, my comedy is a conversation with Black people that other folks just get to be privy to. That's really when I'm writing, you know, nine times out of ten, it's about analyzing those shared experiences. You know, I went back and forth on this special about even leaving in the material. You know, I have a whole chunk in this new hour about the relationship between the Black diaspora as it relates to the, the bigger issue I'm speaking to is like a lot of beef within the black diaspora, but as told through the lens of black British actors being cast in the being cast to portray famous black Americans and the, the dialogue that's happening between those two black communities about that issue. To me, that's not an issue that anyone else that if you're not part of those two camps, you shouldn't even really be having an opinion on it is my personal opinion. But then it's like, all right, well, if I do this joke, am I putting family business out there? But damn, I feel like we need to hear this. We as the Black people, as a race, as a whole, this is a good conversation to have. So it shows something that I think a lot of people may not even know was happening within our community but then also giving you perspective on the idea of togetherness as a whole, It's we, the people as a whole, like all races and all of that Kumbaya stuff. But like, it's, let's focus on, to address a bigger thing, let's talk about this smaller thing. And then hopefully if I do it right, it'll connect to a bigger conversation that's happening at large, without me ever having to address the larger conversation.
1: Hmm yeah, and if we take a step back and just look at where the country is um, right now, in May, that'll be two years since the murder of George Floyd nationwide protest. Um you as a performer and artist, how has your work, how has your comedy evolved, changed since then?
0: Um, I think I'd probably go back to what we were talking about at the top, and that, you know, I believe comedy has to happen faster now. You know, I think that this idea of sitting on thoughts and opinions until they're in their most polished form to present in some fashion is gone. I think the moment you have the thought, the quicker you can get it out, the better off you are, because I don't even think we're in a, you know, 12 hour news, 24 hour news cycle is dead. We might be in a 12 hour news cycle, but that might not even, the, the world is moving fast. And so I think what George Floyd and everything that happened in 2020 showed me was just how fed up a lot of people are. So I think if you can tap into emotion as well, within a joke, I think you're in the right place when it, you know, when you start, at least when I'm trying to put together what to talk about or what I wanna focus on on stage. Okay, well, what are the things that people feel passionate about, positive or negative? And, and, And this just isn't necessarily social issues. You'd be surprised, like, Some of the biggest arguments I get into on Twitter isn't about politics, it's about food. If you go on Twitter and say you hate a food, the minions will come over the hills and they will... There's an argument right now on my Twitter feed from last week. I asked a question about Spider-Man. There's people arguing about who was the best Spider-Man. And I didn't even ask that question. So whatever people are passionate about, they're going to say something. About it. So if you have opinions about people's passions, I think you're going to be existing in a good space comedically, you know. Now.
1: Yeah, and if, if we think about this moment in the country the past year and a half, two years, some people have called it a racial reckoning. Do you think we're reckoning with race as a country in the way that we should be? And if not, what what's missing from the conversation?
0: it's just a bunch of lip service and a bunch of reversals that have happened since 2020 that you've gotten a bunch of like america i'd say since 2020 america is essentially you know i said this in my second special just about how america's like this restaurant and black people are just we just want better service the managers come to the table that's what 2020 was 2020 was the manager finally coming to the table and going, what's wrong? Oh, well, I see you're upset about your service. That's unfortunate, and I'm sorry you feel that way. And they walked the hell off. You know, I do think that there's been some degree of political progress, but acknowledging that there is an issue and going, I see you and I hear you and giving people a bunch of murals, but not giving them legislation. Did you really hear me? If there's no legislation on the books, were we really heard? If you got a bunch of gerrymandering happening out the yin yang, that's gonna set up like this midterm. This midterm about to be chaos, dog. And I, that will be the telltale of whether or not we were heard in 2020. You know, I just don't. You know, maybe I'm a pessimist, but you know, when you have, when you have legislators taking COVID money and using it instead to buy, to put money into prisons. Alabama, my home state. No, I don't feel like there's this overarching feeling of collective progress. I'm sure there's pockets. I'm sure you could show me a couple of places that's got a referendum on the books and doing the right thing and caring about but, but All of that, ask the nurses if something's changed. Ask the school people. Like it's, it it still feels very politicized. You know, this country is very, you know, capitalistic and politicized and in a way that I think stops a lot of progress from happening, not just on black issues, but just on a lot of issues across the board.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you've been, uh... Stand-up comedian performing for decades, traveling all over the country, telling these jokes. What is something that you've learned about Americans' attitudes on race, performing these kinds of jokes that might surprise people to hear?
0: I don't think most people care about what the big cities care about. I think that Twitter has tricked people into thinking that the whole country cares about the stuff you care about. I think social media has tricked a lot of people into thinking. Well, I found the people who think like me, so surely everybody else thinks. People don't give a damn, dog. I was just in Idaho in November. You think Idaho care about half the stuff that y'all talking about and some? You ain't. You're, you're not. There's a lot of people in this country, white and black, that are hurting. They broke. They sick. They poor. I ain't trying to hit nothing about no paper straws. They trying to survive. So. I think that there is a collective level of, there's a low collective level of give a damn that I think a lot of people are really, really underestimating when it comes to what the issues are. And, you know, when you look at ways to connect with people, and that's why I just, you know, when they say politics is local, that's the truth. You have to change the local politicians and really and really have young people there. And if there's a bright spot, because I've been, I feel like I've been very bleak the last like six seven <laughs> minutes. Hey, the reality. What I have noticed <laughs> is that the young people care, and mm-hmm. so they are far more opinionated than anything that I ever came up in you know I came out of high school in 96 and I would say the most we did for the earth I remember one year for earth day we all went outside and held hands and it was like hands across America for earth day or some for hunger I I don't know but it was not nearly that my son is five and he told me that we should have a Tesla because it's safer for the environment and he's learning how to read. So now when the city bus pass passed by and it says hybrid bus, he goes, that's a good thing, daddy. I don't know who taught him that. <laughs> I didn't teach him that. I thought you still need to learn how to count. But now you know about clean energy? I didn't know about clean energy at age five. So when I meet the teenagers, when I'm out doing daily show gigs and, you know, the young 20-somethings, you know, that gives me a lot of hope for hmm. what this country, you know, can be, because, you know, as much as they want to take the education out of the books, they want to take the knowledge out of the books, you can't take the knowledge out the street. And hmm. the truth will find people, and those people hopefully will take that. But for the people my age and older, they don't care about half the stuff y'all want them to care about, and they're not going to, because they're broke, and they're sick, and they're just trying to get through the day.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you touch on what what kids are learning right now in schools, because there's this whole conversation controversy right now about critical race theory and what should children be taught in schools. And I've noticed in your stand up, you talk a lot about history. Um, what do you make of this conversation around critical race theory and race being taught in schools? And, and why do you return to history as a theme in your work?
0: Um... I would hope that when I'm dead and gone, that my comedy could exist as a lens through which to view things that were difficult to understand. So for me, that's why I try to, you know, make a little sense about, you know, history. And and I jokingly, it was very tongue in cheek when I said it in the special, but, you know, just in talking about how That's why I feel like, you know, a lot of civil rights movies are still important. And a lot of people have opinions about not wanting to see Black pain commoditized by Hollywood, but where else are you gonna put our history if it ain't in the history book? So people have to seek it out and seek it out and read it. And okay, fine, but not everyone learns the same way. So there have to be multiple avenues for people to have access to the information and find out things that they normally Wouldn't seek out on their own. So that's part of why I talk about history. To the greater argument of critical race theory, you know, that goes back to the politics is local thing. If you got a school board and you got a bunch of parents that's not with it, at the end of the day, a city, most cities are run like corporations. And the corporation's job is to keep the customers happy. So if there are more customers that are more vocal about speaking out black history, there ain't going to be no black history in that book. We're not going to be learning about Standing Rock in that book. We're going to ban any book that's talking about anything decent. So, yes, we need a voice. Yes, we need to vote. And those things all help. But I think as parents, you know, ultimately, what you're going to have to do is supplement the American education system. It in, in its current construct, it is not enough to truly prepare your child for the world, or the real world.
1: In addition to being a stand comedian. It's
0: perfect. Right. <laughs> Other
1: than that. Sorry, to cut you off before
0: you finished your point. No, you're fine, you're
1: fine. <laughs> uh, in addition to being a stand-up comic, um, you produced a documentary for PBS about Confederate monuments. Um, folks might be surprised to hear that, but what what do you think should be done with the remaining Confederate monuments and symbols around this country, and also the ones that have been taken down?
0: I mean, the ones that have been taken down, put them in a park. I mean, if that's your dude, all right, here's your corner of the country to go root for that dude. But to put these things in public places for everybody, you know, and I have to tip the hat uh, to the other executive producer on this, C.J. Hunt, who was the director of it. Uh, It's called The Neutral Ground. It's available on PBS and POV. And in The Neutral Ground, when by the time C.J. got me on board, he had already done two years of traveling and because it starts with just taking down one monument in New Orleans, and then that just barrel rolls into everything that started happening in 2015 and 2016. Then Trump happens, then Charlottesville happens. like I'm I'm not of the necessary belief that you can just throw all this stuff in the water. If a bunch of people want to cry over a statue and go that's their guy, that's fine. But put that over in the corner somewhere. Everybody don't need to see that because he wasn't everybody's guy. And he did a lot of horrible stuff. We'll put that over in the cut. I mean, I mean, the bottom of the ocean would be nice, but it would be tough to get to. Um, but if we're talking capitalism, man, put all that stuff in a park and charge folks $20 to see it. You know how long the light? you know how much money you'd make at a Confederate monument park on the January 6th anniversary? Come on, dog. I'm trying to get paid. <laughs> in fact, the money, well, actually... I would buy them. <laughs> Did you just come up with a business idea
1: for yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, in a few days will be the one-year anniversary of January 6th. You you mentioned it briefly in your special. Um, Coming up on this anniversary, what do you want the conversation to be about?
0: I don't I'd I hate the word anniversary because it seems like something to be celebrated and commemorated and never forget the people that were like, nah, man, remember that wild-ish that happened a year ago? That was wild, wasn't it? Yeah, okay, moving on. Um, I hope that we understand that there's a contingency of people in this country that are very adamant about what they believe. And if you are not as adamant as they are about what you believe... Stuff that you believe may never come to be. So I just think that there's a level of action that we have to all take, you know, as a people. But, you know, there's a serious grip that has happened to the American voter from American politicians. And, you know, a lot of those people that are out there, they bought the lie, man. They bought the lie. And, You almost can't be mad at some of them because they was just broke and hungry and sick and tired. And a liar came along and said, I got you. And that was all they needed to hear because they just needed something to hold on to. And they haven't been able to let that go since. So, you know, there's a serious sense of hopelessness that a lot of Americans are dealing with on both sides. And I just think that, you know, one side dealt with it in a matter that was far less productive, you know, than the other side. But, you know, for me, yeah. January 6th, not something to be remembered or whatever.
1: Mm. Yeah, and as we saw at the very top, you do have a background in journalism. Um, how has that uh, shaped your approach to comedy and your work on The Daily Show as well?
0: Research, that's probably the like, I can't speak for other comedians, but I sit and if it's something I want to talk about and do jokes about, then I have to do research, I have to learn as much as I can about this issue or this person or this thing, and then backtrack into figuring out how to approach it. So for me, I'd say journalistically, it's about what do I not know about this that I can add? And also, what's the conversation that's currently happening around this so that I'm not repeating or stepping on something that's already been done within the space on this issue? I don't want to hit the same beats and the same notes as someone else. Like, that means reading YouTube comments. That means going on Reddit boards. That means, like, just delving into not just the topic itself, but the opinions around the topic. And once I have all of that laid out in front of me, then you can see where the information gaps are. Based on what I know about this topic and based on what everyone has discussed about the topic, I know what spots you've missed. And so now those become the spots that I will then try to spin into something funny. If it's not funny, then I just have to throw it out. And I've wasted two weeks doing research on a topic that's never gonna be on stage. And you wash, Rinse Repeat.
1: You're also from Alabama. Maybe you can speak a little bit just to how being from Alabama has shaped your perspective um, on and how what you're bringing to comedy that maybe other comics aren't bringing. Uh,
0: in Alabama, when you live in Alabama as a black person, you're the underdog. And when you're from Alabama in America, you're also an underdog. So you're always operating from the back of the pack in the terms of expectations which i think makes it easier like alabama's one of the few places you can be from where people go i don't hear an accent. like how would you what does that even mean like it, like i get it but then you would never say that aloud which i don't hear an accent in my brain just reconstitute as you don't sound stupid <laughs> so You know, you always have a chance to surprise and sneak people because it's a place that people write off as not mattering. That's why I saw from Warnock winning in Georgia and Georgia getting flipped blue was such a big deal because nobody expected that. You know, when you're from a place filled with low expectations, it's very easy to raise the bar.
1: Yeah, you've spoken a little bit already about um, what's changed in comedy um, in the past just couple years, looking at the state of the country now, the uncertainties with the pandemic, the political discourse. uh, Where do you see comedy headed? And um, is this like the most difficult time you've had as a comedian during your entire career, given the world?
0: (laughs) The only thing that I've had an issue with Stand up in the last two years is the turnaround time from a joke being ready to be seen versus a joke no longer being relevant and figuring out the right window of opportunity to let go of material and go, Here it is, it's ready. I'm out of time. You know, I don't have a problem with the discourse, you know, I don't have a problem with people having opinions about my opinions. That's part of the game of comedy. And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of a lot of chirping from comedians. And it's not just Chappelle, but it's a lot of chirping from, you know, a lot of stand-ups. And this was happening. I mean, even when you go all the way back to the Seinfeld and Chris Rock college comment about not wanting to perform on college campuses because they don't like the material. Okay, that's fine. And then Seinfeld and Chris just stopped doing colleges. So I think comedians, we are the ultimate adjusters. Uh, to what's happening in the world. So if someone doesn't want to hear that, then I'll go somewhere where someone does. Like no matter what you're doing, there's something, someone wants to hear There's an audience that's out there. You just have to find them. I don't care about somebody who don't rock with me. There's a lot of white people who think I talk about race way too much. What I'm supposed to do? Stop talking about race? So you just you just you keep going. And for me, I. You know, when they go, it's a tough time for comedy. No, it's not. People just got phones and opinions. Back in the eighties, they had to write a letter to the editor. But now <laughs> they can just tweet you and just go, hey, I didn't like that joke. What's with these people? Not like some people ain't gonna like you. It's all in the game. You know? And yeah. I think until comics are getting taken out of the comedy clubs and handcuffs, mm-hmm. it doesn't bother me as much. I'll just <laughs> For now.
1: Yeah. It doesn't bother
0: me. Yeah. But, you know, it's <laughs> an ever-evolving situation.
1: Right, right. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Roy, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate you all and all of the work y'all do at the WAPO, and thank you for finding that ridiculously old-ass clip of <laughs> I can't believe you. Now.
1: Be sure to tweet that <laughs> out later. <laughs> and, and thanks And thanks to all of you for joining us today. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.